welcome to episode 14.4 of the Game Pit, where we're continuing our previews of the Essen 2013 show. Yeah, this is the final one of our Essen previews, and we're going to be talking about six games that have caught our eye. And as always, these are just our initial thoughts and views on the matter, and by no means have we seen or play-tested these games. Okay, so I am going to be introducing Countdown Special Ops, Caverna and The Glass Road. Sean, what do you want to talk about? I'm going to be doing Canterbury, Autus and Eight Masters Revenge. You can catch all our episodes along with other audio, video and written gaming goodness at 2d6.org. And we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out dicetowernetwork.com to find the very best in board gaming podcasts. First up from me is Canterbury. Designed by Andrew Parks from Cool Worlds and Star Trek Attack Wing fame. Published by, published by Quixotic Games. And this is formed by Andrew Parks himself. And this Canterbury is the first game from this publisher. Plays two to four with a time frame of 90 minutes or so. And it's a medieval city building area influence game. So you're going to take on the role of Saxon lords and you're looking to use the dilapidated ruins of Roman Canterbury to kickstart a thriving city. Speaking of kickstarting, this was a successful project through Kickstarter. So you're starting with limited resources. Players will be looking to build up the 25 districts of the city. Each district will need to provide key services for its citizens and they range from basic to prestigious. In order, the key services are water, food, religion, defence, commerce and culture. As you build the basic services like water and food in each district, you unlock the ability to build more prestigious services. For instance, to get religion, a player must build in a district in which both water and food are provided already. Now there are different sizes to the elements and they are small, taking up one space and supplying that district only, medium, taking up two spaces in the district, and supplying all orthogonally adjacent districts. And finally, the large one, which is a large square, taking up four spaces, and it supplies five districts anywhere on the board chosen by that player laying the tile. As Canterbury grows, its prestige grows, and there is an overall prestige marker, which triggers bonus scoring after 100, 200, and finally 300 prestige points when the game end phase is triggered too. This marker also determines the wealth of the city and how much money players get when they levy funds and collect taxes. Each player also has their own prestige marker, and this is basically their victory point tally. One thing I've deliberately not spoken about so far is what players actually do during their turns. And that's because it's very simple with just three choices. The choices are to levy funds. The player will take money from the city treasury with the amount depending on the position of the prosperity marker, which I spoke of earlier. However, on their next turn, they must perform a full build. The next choice is full build. A player must build one and or two medium buildings or one large building. Third choice is tax and build. A player collects half the funds rounded down 
that they would collect from the levy funds action and builds one of any size building. The buildings must be placed after they're purchased and after 300 points are reached, as I said before, the game end begins and the points are tallied, taking into account domination in each district and also the king's bonus track. This is a separate board which awards players for having supplied the most of each key service and possibly if the second most has enough points the second most will get points too the player with the most prestige wins after that and it's a rough overview of canterbury ronan well as ever we're going to look for the first thing i guess towards the publisher and the designer as to this game now in terms of the publisher i think it's, they're, they're pretty new the designer though is andrew parks and his design core world is one of my favorite games i love it to pieces so this is a leg up for canterbury we're gonna to have to ignore some of his slightly dodgy tie-ins that he's designed as well but this does feel really really different to core worlds both in the mechanisms but most especially and i know that this is going to be a segue into a rant here sean that artwork he couldn't have made it more euro than if he'd put it painted it all blue and put some gold stars in it could he i was trying to think of a, a way to describe the whole design of this game age uh, not the design <laughs> not the design no the actual artwork behind it and uninspiring is the word that i think sums it up it just it just leaves me a little bit cold this it's not hideous it's functional but there's no real color there's just massive loads of green or beige uh there's not a lot more to it i don't even think when the tiles are all laid they're not vivid enough to stand out from the board and it all kind of melds into one doesn't look like a great game no i'm hoping it's one of those games that looks much worse in pictures than it does in reality um yeah there's plenty of them whereby the simplicity of the graphic design belies the fact that it needs to be simple because you're looking at all the interactions. Now, there are going to be lots of interactions with those medium and large buildings. They supply lots of areas. So you need to be able to tie in the relationships between the different areas and what's getting supplied from where and therefore, according to that hierarchy of building, what can be built. So with all that information having to be on the board, I hope the simplicity makes it easier rather than what it kind of looks like is everything looks beige and it's kind of hard to tell where what is and how this interacts with that. Yeah. It's, see, now, if if it is like that, when we do finally get to have a look at this game, hopefully being played, if it is like that, it's going to be so hard to tell what you're influencing and how you're influencing and what people are, are influencing. I know, very simply, the domination of each district is going to be quite easy because it's literally a cube goes into the space so if you've got the if you place the religion you place your color cube into the religion spot but other than that i think it's going to be quite difficult to tell what's where and, and where you're going to place your cube to get maximum effect so yeah if, if the artwork isn't vivid enough to pop off that really bland board i think that could be a, a major functionality problem with the game moving slightly on from the looks which i think clearly we're not big fans of is it going to be too scripted is it going to be that every game starts pretty much the same and players fall into patterns of play with that hierarchy of services obviously you can't kind of go out on a limb and suddenly start building lots of religious buildings because the board is going to have to develop in at least similar patterns if not the very same way to start with it gives it really interesting structure in that you can only pounce in certain times and the board builds up in a certain way but is it going to build up too much in the same way every time yeah i think it's a danger and i think one of the 
criticisms of this game already, and I don't know whether that's come from playtesting or demos or what have you, is that it is complete strategy. There's no random to the game. And the problem with those types of games is that a good player, and a, an experienced player in this, can almost set up the game as they wish and move forward without really having to face anything that's going to change their tactics or change how they, they play their next move even. So, yeah, I suppose it, it can be quite prescriptive in that in that sense. And I don't know if there's going to be enough, if there's enough districts or if there's enough different things that people can do that, that people are going to have to stop and think, hang on, oh, I didn't see that coming. I'll have to, I'll, I'm going to completely change the way I was moving. Well, yeah, <laughs> you see it in two ways. There's only three actions Whenever someone takes income, they're going to get the same income as the other players at that time of the game. So you think, is there much player freedom? The only thing I think that gives me hope that things will really get mixed up is the is the fact you can overbuild. I think if you didn't have that overbuilding, then things would just get really grind to a halt quickly. But the fact that you don't have to spread out, you can come back and, and build over someone else. And then in that way, chain yourself into another area, what have you. That gives me hope that that maybe there's enough interaction on the ball, that overbuilding ability, that things will mix up and it will be, will be player dependent. And while you might start similar, as the game develops, it, it hopefully it will go in different directions. Yeah, well, that, that is the hope. And I haven't seen enough to say that that's not going to happen. One thing I have looked at, and I thought, that first round, where we get into that first 100 uh, prosperity or whatever it was, I think that's going to be where the, the real sort of meat of the game, and that's where people's engines are going to start to, to function and drive from. And I think that first round is going to be probably as long as the next two combined because the options get less and less, surely, as the game goes on. So I think this is one's going to start slow, and I think it's going to really, really speed up towards the end, unless, obviously, you're playing with people who overthink everything. I think I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I mm. think that... <laughs> At the beginning, because you have to get that water and food supply in, I think there's going to be a limited number of moves. Once those basic supplies are in place, then I think you're going to be able to start looking more at scoring those bonuses for the area control. And Well, the breaking ground is obviously going to be an early one because it's got to move into new areas, but also scoring the points for enlarging. So if you overbuild a religious building with another religious building, you get a bonus for that. I think is going to lead you into spreading wide and then looking for the nip-tuck areas. And it's then that you're trying to weigh up. Do I take two points from him there or three points from him there? That's going to score me less points, but it will lead to this service going into this area, which will then later on will let me... You know, I'm hoping you're going to be able to chain and that the moves will become... You might have less moves as the game gets on, I think, because people will start scoring points quicker and quicker. So the first 100 points will be slower to get to, but that the moves will have more impact. So you might have to think more possibly about those moves. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. I mean, what I'm concerned about it is those bonus points, you seem to get them for everything. You know, you get a bonus for doing this, bonus for doing that, bonus for being left-handed, bonus for being right-handed. Sometimes I like there to be bonus points to kind of guide people a little bit into this is how maybe we can shape the game and this is will help you develop a good strategy. But when you give bonus points out for everything, it becomes a bit reachy point salad. You know, everything I do gets something. Yeah, it's another thing I've seen written about it um, not really criticism but more of a beware is that it is quite difficult to keep track of all the points that you're getting and all these bonuses that you're getting so yeah I, I definitely see what you're saying and 
I think it probably could go either way. I just, I'm really interested to see this game being played out because it's one of the games that's really got me thinking, and the potential is there. But is is it going to realise that potential? Again, it's going to be difficult to tell. I think that there's going to be limited numbers available at Essen, so maybe by the time we get there it might actually be sold out from the sounds of things and certainly the buzz is building up around it so hopefully someone knows pick it up because i am interested in giving it a go sean what's your final thoughts on canterbury i keep changing my mind on this one it goes from love to hate for me this one all the time at the moment i'm veering towards the love rather than the hate every time i look at the rules and every time i think about how it could play out it changes in my mind but i want to say despite the bad design and the bad artwork i'm going to say is going to be an interesting treasure i also am backwards and forwards with this one i really like the interesting puzzly aspect of it i like the sort of ellison like player interaction of overbuilding and stealing points from each other a little bit worried about it being too scripted but i am going to keep faith in andrew parks and i'm going to make this a slight treasure okay so our second game for this episode is going to be a countdown special ops this is a one to six player roughly 30 minutes it's claimed to be but i think you're going to find probably 45 50 minutes for a whole game from setup to to finalize it's going to be more realistic it's a co-op very much car driven game and it's based around an anti-terrorism theme in that you are going to be playing the part of a team of special forces. You're going to be dealing with some form of terrorist situation during the course of the game. And by working together and using your special powers, you're going to hope to resolve the situation in a positive manner. Now, the two designers of this game are Hurchan Umis, which is first-time designer, and Hans Van Tol. Now, Hans Van Tol has had a few games out, including Opera, which was a, an interesting game that came out at Essen think maybe a year or two ago he's also done the ports of europe series with rotterdam and amsterdam another set of games that euro games that got some interest in them there now the publisher is the games master bv and they published opera from hands previously and also they seem to have lots of licensed dutch versions of different games but i'm not sure they've had so many original games out so how are we going to go about playing countdown special ops well first of all you're going to choose a scenario and the scenario takes part in different locations and when you set up the scenario, depending upon the location, you're going to set these location cards out in a certain pattern. So, for example, the basic example they use is a cruise ship. So when you lay out these roughly 15 or 16 different areas with cards in, it looks kind of in the shape of a cruise ship. However, if it's on an oil rig, for example, the cards will be in a different shape. And they show you where your characters can go. You're also going to choose your members of the team. Each member has got different special abilities. So you can have a sniper, a bomb disposal expert, an intel expert, a first aid expert, someone who's a crack shot. There are seven different characters. And according to the situation, you choose which ones you wish to use. Now, the different characters have got health, obviously. Now, no one's got too much health. This is an attempt to be fairly realistic. There's no one running around here going to be taking 10 shots and surviving. You've got maybe one or two health to look after and to prevent from losing. 
Also, you've got an aiming skill, which is going to help you when you're rolling dice. I think, I believe you add your aiming skill to a dice roll and attempt to uh, hit any terrorists you come across. You have energy. Energy is what allows you to conduct your special skills, and that gets replenished every round. So you can spend energy to do something, and you're always going to get one back every round. Maybe store a couple in order to have a, a big round now and then. And also, all bar one has got a speciality skill. That's what I was talking about earlier. You might have an intel expert, bomb disposal expert, what have you. The only character that doesn't have a special skill is that guy who's the, the crack shot. He's got extra on his aiming skill. You set up the scenario with these threat cards in the shapes I discussed. And the threat cards indicate how many there are. So it's kind of an area which you're going to be looking to go into using the wooden action pieces of your special forces. You flip over the threats and you deal with them. Those threats could be terrorists. They could be booby traps. There may be civilians in there. And part of this game is that you're looking, hopefully, to recon what you're going into. You can't go flying in all guns blazing because if you start shooting civilians, you're going to get minus points. And if you end up with too many minus points, you failed the mission, whether you all survive or not. The targets for each of these missions are either going to be to disarm a bomb, to uh, capture or take out a terrorist leader or to rescue some special hostages. That depends upon the scenario you've drawn. There's different levels of scenario so things can be harder or easier. Also, you get some bonus cards called bullet control cards which are just going to help you with a special boost if things are getting a little bit too tough and the group can decide when and where to use them. Each round consists of five different phases. There's an intel phase where you're hoping to learn about the different areas you're looking to move into. Then you have a move phase where you can move your special operatives around the playing area. Then you have an action. You can take one or two actions. You can try and deal with situations in front of you. You have what's called the countdown phase. Now, that's when the game round moves forward. This game is very much based around time. It can be played real time, which is at 35 minutes you get to play. But whether you're playing real time or not, there's always a round countdown. In the harder versions, you have less rounds. In the easier versions, you have more rounds. And you have to attempt your goal within that set number of rounds. So that's adding pressure all the time. You have to maximize. You don't have forever to hang around and try and solve these situations. They count down the countdown pretty quickly, hence the name of the game. And then the last thing you do in each round is the recovery phase. As I mentioned earlier, you're going to get one energy back and you use that energy to use your special skills. When a mission finishes, you do mission scoring. That is if everyone hasn't died. And you're hoping to get a positive score. You're going to get positive scores for dealing with that target card. Like I said earlier, it's going to be a bomb or a terrorist leader or hostages. Any time left you have left in the game, you haven't used all the rounds, you've done it quickly, you're going to get a bonus for that. And also for all the areas you've secured. So you don't have to deal with every single threat card in the game in order to be successful, but the more you have dealt with, the more positive points you get. You're going to lose points for any deaths of members of your team and also for any civilians which you've allowed to die. Now, this is definitely an attempt to take a first-person shooter gaming experience into the board game and tabletop gaming market. Uh, it's been around for a while now. Certainly there were demo copies available to play at the last lesson, but this is the big release. It has been highly anticipated in lots of areas. Sean, I know you've been keeping your eye on Countdown Special Ops. What are your initial impressions before we get a chance to play? Right, I know sometimes we're quite mean about the look of games. And the look of games really isn't the be-all and end-all. But, yeah, as you said, I've been keeping an eye on this game, and I really, really wish, wish I hadn't, because it's burning my eyes. It's so ugly. It's a terrible-looking game. It, uh, it looks like a print-and-play version, and it, it, they might come up with a much more well-produced version in, in the end, but from what I'm seeing and all the photos, nothing's changing. So I can only guess that that's the final production, and it's not the prototype. It looks awful. 
the the characters in it. What? Why do we have to have a first name for all the characters? There's like Bob the Buster and Vince the Scout and Matt the Sniper. Really? It, it sounds like a really weird take on a children's TV character. Hey, kids! Wave to Matt the Sniper. Hey, hi, Matt the Sniper. It's just weird. The artwork on those characters is weird as well. There seems to be a character straight out of Tron for some reason. Ronan. <laughs> they have all got nicknames. Now, I'm slightly torn on this issue. <laughs> we've got art, we've got character names. So let's go one at a time. Character names. If they were called, I don't know, like some ridiculous over-the-top name that no one would ever have in real life, you know, Jupiter McPherson or something, then we'd be complaining, oh, no one's called Jupiter Wait, McPherson. Whoa, 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 whoa there. I know a Jupiter McPherson. All oh, so right, it's the first person that sprang to mind. Fair enough, all right, he cuts your hair, fine. Not Jupiter McPherson, a stupid name. Um, we'd be moaning and going, oh, why can't they just be called Steve? But now they have called them Steve. We're moaning and saying, why aren't they called Jupiter McPherson? So they have all got nicknames. Like the bomb disposal expert is Steve the bomb disposal expert, but his nickname is Wires. Come on now. Or the intel expert, her nickname's Brains. This is wonderfully thematic stuff. <laughs> but come on, Matt the Sniper. I am more concerned with the character <laughs> art. Let's, let's start with Wires. He looks like a fugitive who's hiding away in some John Wayne diving suit from that famous other forties film. Uh, he he looks like Gru out of Despicable Me hiding in a suit. In his dad's suit. <laughs> the helmet of that thing is massive and his face is tiny. What else is going on inside there? Who's in there with him? Okay. What's about the Tron character? He's supposed to be is he the spy or something? Like you wouldn't spot him from a mile off with that helmet actually glowing. <laughs> I actually particularly like Matt the Sniper because he looks like someone who's been sleeping on a park bench for a while. I'm just a bit concerned. Right. So <laughs> we're being really mean about this poor game. It's not so much these kind of slightly odd choices. It's that it looks like someone's designed it on MS Paint as well. There's no flourish to the artwork. There's no polish. There's nothing that makes it look nice. It's kind of all the basic blocks are there the iconography's there and, and it's kind of clear there are about 50 different icons now when there's 50 different icons you're getting a bit beyond iconography into i don't know symbology or your own little language or what have you but there's loads of them but they do kind of make sense once you get into how the game plays it just it's not easy on the eye it's blocky it's straight lines everywhere it's real basic fonts it's i don't think i'm a i'm an art snob but this one it it doesn't make me relaxed looking at these components it it's just the most basic you can make it. It's like a good high school project for a board game. Yeah, it's just even the scoring tracks where you keep count of where your character levels are or or even like how the mission's going. It just looks like somebody's gone on to Word and spent half an hour and said, there you go, that'll do. And it will do. It'll do the job, but it don't look very good. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Okay, we can talk about the actual proper game. Yeah, let's move on. Let's okay. move on. <laughs> um, the fact that you can play it real time so you can set the time of 35 minutes and play it. Now, there are rounds in the game anyway, so you can only play a set number of rounds. This whole idea you have to play it in 35 minutes, is it just a gimmick? Yeah, probably. I think if you want if you want that extra pressure, then it is something you can add into the game. 
But I, yeah, I don't, I don't see the the need for it to be honest. It it feels slightly tacked on to me. You know, you've already got your own counter going on in the game. It's not like there's any sort of time pressure to any of the moves you're making. There's there's no sort of twitch reactions there, which is I think what people were hoping for when they heard it was timed and they heard it was based on the first person shooter. They're hoping there was some kind of successful twitch game into it. Now I think we can go back to Escape, that game you're not such a big fan of. But it does do real-time gaming successfully. And real-time gaming is something that's really getting a push. It's Time and Space has come out from um, Stronghold Games. and I can't remember them all, but there's a few more coming whereby real-time gaming is coming into tabletop gaming. But with this, I'm just not sure how effective it's been. They have given you some different options in the game, though. Some, some longevity to it. There's, For example... Real basic, the threat level cards. There are green, there are orange and red. And how good do you think you are, how good your team is, you can play at any of those three levels. Sean, it looks like they're trying to give this one legs. Yeah, I think this is one of those games. It just looks like it's really, really in-depth and there's loads to remember and you'll never remember it all. But I think it's all intuitive. It's all, it's all there. It's one of those where you will, once you know the game, you will be able to flow. And once you get a group of people who know the game, the game will flow nicely. There's lots of options. to And the different characters, we've mocked the characters and the, the, the artwork of the characters, but the different characters actually do provide different options. And that's almost a game in, in itself, is choosing the right team to go and do certain missions. What's who's going to be more effective? Obviously, if it's a bomb disposal, you're gonna you're gonna need wires or whatever his name. Or I can't remember his name. Steve Wires, yeah. Steve Steve Wires. <laughs> you're gonna need to try and get him to fill his suit at some to fill his suit. That sounds weird. You're gonna have to. You're going to have to try and get him to a size where he can actually peer out the window of his own suit. But, yeah, he's he's going to be someone you need on that mission. Now, do you need the sniper? Do you need Bob the Buster to lob in a few grenades? You're going to, you're going to have to choose wisely. And I think that's going to add some depth into the game. The fact that all these cards are randomized and in different order and... There's going to be certain exit points and entrance points. You've got, oh, we're going to have to plan the missions. And as Ronan said, it's not a game where you can just bowl in and you're going to take 80 shots and still survive. And there's health potions. And it's nice. You're going to have to be very strategic and very thoughtful about what you're doing. And the team are going to have to work together really well. And yet, any game whereby you're drawing cards out of a deck that has all these multiple threats in and you're chucking them down means that can you know you can't really plan. It seems like you have to do that intel every turn in order to to kind of be successful. It kind of feels that way, but okay. Anyway, they've provided you with lots and lots of options. Okay, you can play this green, orange, or red level. There's campaigns, there's even scenario campaigns you can play. There's ways in which you can gain XP for your operatives so you can build them up and they get better and better. There's also even a traitor mode whereby you can have one or two traitors within the team. Are they throwing as many things into the mix as possible, Sean, because they're not confident in the basic mechanics? I actually think the basic mechanics are the strongest point of this game. So if we are now saying, or you're now saying, that that's an aspect of the game that you're worried about, then you have to be really worried about the game. I actually think the, the mechanics are, are fairly strong, and 
the rest of it is just garnish. It's just a bit of garnish to keep people interested in the game once once the basic missions and they're just doing things in a certain way of have worn, worn through and there's there's always a bit of fun to be had with a traitor mechanic in there yeah but if the game's strong do you have to throw all these different options i just okay it what it feels like to me and i know that lots of people like police precinct but i didn't and i didn't feel like my fourth game of police precinct was going to be very different to my first game yeah random stuff happens but it's the same random stuff that's happening i still have to do exactly the same thing every game in this one it feels like every game i pretty much just have to do exactly the same thing you might change some of the garnish but at the end of the day i'm still getting the same dish yeah funnily enough i was uh, when i was looking at this game just the look of it i actually thought of Police precinct, and <laughs> they both given, <laughs> given that I thought pre- police precinct was quite an unfortunate looking game, and I have to say that it's a more polished and pretty version of this that just shows you the level that this is at. But yeah, I see what you mean. I actually quite liked police precinct. I liked uh, the cooperative element to it and the problem solving element to it and the prioritising side of it. But but we'll, I'm sure we'll come to that on a on another day. Um, this one, yeah, I see see where you're coming from i see this the same sort of things going on uh is has it got the longevity and probably not has police precinct probably not but it's it's one of those i think you're gonna have to play just uh, probably a few times or see it played a few times before you can really really decide right sean are you ready to sum up on your thoughts on countdown special ups yes right it looks awful it seems interesting haven't got much more to add than that I think it's going to be a trap because any game that looks that bad and they've taken that little time to put into production values rings some massive, massive alarm bells for me. So trap. I think that this has all the thematic and possibly mechanical trappings of a good game. I just think that when I unwrap the wrapping paper, there's going to be an empty box in the middle of it. I don't think it's got any of that meat and bones I don't think it's done anything different despite all the claims and attempts to make it look like something different. I really hope I'm wrong. I've been looking at this game for a while. I've had high hopes for it. I was waiting for this rule book with bated breath, but I'm afraid I'm a bit wary of it. So I'm going to have to play someone else's copy. And for me, this one looks like being a bit of a trap. So next up is a game called Autus. It's designed by Joost Das, and he did a game called Oh No Invasion. It's published by Fablesmith, which is Mr. Das's own company. It plays two players with a time frame of about 30 minutes. It's an area control action point allocation battle game. So as famous warlords, players are going to step into the Autus arena with a team of hand-picked warriors specialising in the elements to decide who is the superior tactician. The warriors each specialise in one of the following elements. You have fire, wind, earth and water. The board is made up of a grid of hexagon-shaped spaces called, amazingly, hexes, and eight of them have what is called an energy well on them. So in this description, we're going to go through the basic game. Players have a team of eight warriors consisting of two of the specialists in each element. You'll have a starting power of 14 each round, and this power can be spent moving with a cost of one power per hex and for fighting your opposition warriors. Players will earn more power for each energy well that they begin their turn occupying. So there are three different attack types, and they are a strike when standing next to opponent warrior. A player will attack with three power, 
no power is taken off the attacking player. The defender will then choose whether to spend three power to fend off the attack. You have a range. This is for fire and wind warriors only. There must be a space between the attacker and the defender, and the attacker will spend a power for each space between them and the defender, and one extra for the space the defender occupies. And the attack value of this is four. Again, the defender must allocate four points of power to see off the strike. You then have charge. This is for earth and water characters. Players will take their attacking piece and place it next to their prey, paying a power point for each space moved. The attack is for five points, but this warrior cannot do any further actions, including taking the, the space of the defender for the remainder of the turn. The winner of the game is the first to occupy five of the eight energy wells at the start of their turn. So there's a master game, and this adds different ways of moving with different power attacks for each warrior set. And there's some variants contained in the rulebook as well. As I said, this is the base game I've, I've talked about, Ronan. So there's the two different games here there's the apprentice game and then there's the uh expert game the apprentice game seems awful it seems limited it seems fixed end quickly it doesn't look very nice it's got a boring board it can't even see it last in 30 minutes everything just runs out it seems much cheaper to attack than to defend you're going to kill some things and you get to the middle in no time um I, I'm not sure really there's anything in that Apprentice game at all. No, it's, it's very basic and possibly even, a, they haven't really said it, but it's possibly a learning mechanism, uh, which I wish they, if they, that is what it is. They should have just come out and said, this is your first game after that, leave it alone. But this game for me, if ever a game was crying out for some manga miniatures or just some real sort of Japanese flavoured artwork with little characters, each doing different things with different powers. Uh, this is this game. They've just put these little tiny tubes with balls on top of them as, as your warriors. This game could have appealed to the, a younger audience with just a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of production value. Uh, could it? <laughs> I think so. I think... I think you've got all these sort of Pokemon-style battle games. And I think this is what the game I thought I was looking at when I first started looking at Autos was very much that, which uh, where they're they using the elements, but each warrior would have its own little power. And it would be almost like a straight-up sort of tactical fight with all these little Pokemon-style characters, maybe. Maybe not strictly Pokemon-style characters, but that kind of thing where they've all got their own thing and they're all coming at the game from slightly different angles and could do slightly different things to each other and move in slightly different ways and then expansions will bring in new things and you buy individual characters to go on you're, and you're aware that build those games your... exist right? no no but I, I just thought that was going to be a, well, it was going to be a, it's a kickstarter campaign and if they come out and said, this is a two-player abstract with absolutely no theme in it and four different types of pieces that do four different things, how many people would have backed it? Yeah, true. You got, but yeah, it's, it's pretty looking much through, what it is. So it's looking behind the curtain of Kickstarter, isn't it? No, yeah, absolutely. And that's the the main disappointment for me in this one. It's just, it's a game of chess with a few extra rules oh, thrown in. Yeah, don't, don't, be, don't be disrespectful to chess like that. <laughs> right, it's a game that's not as good as chess, but it's loosely based on it yeah i mean 
into, when you get past the Apprentice game into the O, the full game, what have you, I, th- I think there's some good ideas there. The fact that the four different elemental pieces have got the different powers, you know, uh, and they actually feel kind of thematic in the way they do it. Like Earth is slow, big damage, good defense, wind moves for free, water damages whole areas, and fire has to work in pairs but can do lots of damage. That, you know... It, nice that is a nice idea but still it seems fixed towards the attacker so it's fixed to end quickly it seems purely tactical because you have so many power points wind can move anywhere for free gone you know and i just don't see the appeal in it I, when you're talking about a two-player abstract game on a board it's hexes instead of squares right great it has to have real classic appeal. This is so limited with only four different types of pieces. It really does seem very, very simple. You're right. It can only appeal to kids, but kids have got hero clicks, or for example, or something more interesting than these wooden bits. I, I don't know who wants to play this game. Do you know what this game feels like? It feels like a game that will walk up to an S and go, oh yeah. Play one game of it and go, I think I've learned everything I need to know, and go, thanks, mate, and walk off. To be honest, I don't even think I'll go up and play one game of it, because it looks terrible. Can I give you my thanks for making me research it, then? (laughs) (laughs) No, but just in the looks, the looks department, it just, I was initially interested in it. I had a look at the game components on the board. I wasn't interested anymore. I heard some good things about it. I went back, I had a deeper look at it, and as you said, that base game is... Way, way too basic. Okay, so Sean, would you like to sum up for us on Autus? Yeah, this is an easy one. It's uh, it's too simple, not imaginative enough, and it looks pretty poor. So for me, it's a trap. Yeah, an abstract is going to have to go a long way to uh, find its way into my collection, to be honest. I just picked up the Duke, which is a two-player abstract, played on a board, and I love it. And that's the kind of standard we're setting when you come out with something which has got some good ideas, but is this basic, I'm afraid it's just it's not doing enough to find its way in. So for me, Autis is a trap. So the next game we're going to discuss today is the first of two Uwe Rosenberg releases that are coming out this year. And this one is Caverna, the Cave Farmers. It's for one to seven players, about 30 minutes per player. And this is very much both the mechanical and spiritual successor to Agricola. Uwe Rosenberg is one of the biggest names in game design going at the moment, as well as the aforementioned Agricola. He's also designed Leave, or at Labora, at the Gates of Loyang, the very underrated, in my opinion, Mercator, Bonanza. His name has got huge weight behind it in the industry, and this release has got a lot of attention, especially given that it is the successor to Agricola, which is you know, a massively successful game. In this particular version, you are a dwarf farmer, as opposed to just a standard medieval farmer in Agricola. And the difference that makes is that as well as farming and attempting to grow and house and feed your family, you're also going to be mining from the cave that you start off in into the mountain, attempting to discover rubies and sources of water and what have you. And also you're going to be having to clear forest from the area around your farm in order to develop it, which I think is similar to uh, Farmers of the Moor, which was an expansion to Agricola, but I've never played that one. In this game, players are going to start with two members of their family and they're going to be able to grow this up to five members, exactly the same as Agricola. And each turn you're going to be placing those family members out onto the board in order to choose actions to collect resources build buildings, develop your land, and in this case, mine. In Agricola, a lot of the variety was brought in by decks of cards. 
The base game came with three separate decks of cards which could be used. There was hundreds of cards in there, so every game became different. And then there were many more releases of, of different sets, and there's so there's thousands, literally thousands of cards available for Ricola. In Caverna, what he seems to have done is taken his move in the two-player Agricola game or creatures big and small and that is using tiles instead of cards so Caverna has 48 tiles that are available and this is what you can be able to build into your farm and your mining area in order to give you special powers what have you and differentiate your farm from everyone else's other changes from Agricola are that there are going to be uh, quests available believe it or not, in which you're going to be able to arm your dwarfs and then send them out on expeditions and your dwarfs are actually going to be able to level up and become more successful at those quests and get bonuses. And also as well, there's a couple of different types of animal available. There's dogs and donkeys. It's a very similar setup to Agricola in that you set up the boards, the there's action cards which are available and they turn over every round, which make more actions available. There's a set number of rounds per game. But in this one, there's a slight difference in that Agricola, there was a set number of harvests. There was four or five, I can't remember exactly how many. In this game, there's going to be harvest pretty much every round apart from two. So there's going to be lots more uh, of your farm developing, of your animals breeding, of your fields giving out. But also you're going to have to feed your family more often. So it's about building an engine and the more successful you get, the more points you're going to score. And it looks like in this game, points are going to be double that for what you score in Agricola. It's, it doesn't seem to be quite as tight as that game. There's um, an intro game and a full game, as there was a game with Agricola. But in this case, in the tiles, there's less variety in the intro game. It's a way of getting yourself into it. I guess if you've played Agricola before, trying to see the differences and try and get your head around it before you go into the full game with the full variety of tiles. It seems like these... Going on quest route is one you can go after with your family. You can ignore it completely, however. You can try and maximise just the peaceful route, not worrying about getting any weapons and trying to make your farm as efficient as possible. So if you don't like that idea within the game, it's not something that you're forced to go down. So like I say, it's very similar to Agricola in the base mechanisms. You send your family out each turn, you bring them back, you're trying to grow your family, develop your area and score points. You're going to lose points for all the things you haven't got, for areas of your own personal board you haven't developed and pretty much everything that you managed to gain during the game you're going to get points for sean caverna what are your first thoughts well my first thoughts really are this game just looks massive it just looks so intense with lots going on and i'm just worried already about that time frame that you're going to have to input into this game to get it played yeah it says half an hour per player is that just kind of like a random guess because I can't even really see a two-player game getting done in an hour because it follows the same pattern as Agricola, but there seems to be a lot more going on. There's a lot more to consider. There's different paths you can go down. And also with those harvests coming much more often, those in Agricola, you could set up a two or three round strategy in order to deal with that harvest that was coming up. But with Harvest every round, it seems like maybe you're going to be having to come up with more plans more quickly and possibly it's going to be a bit more involved in the curricula. Yeah, just uh, especially when you've got two separate channels to go down as well. Agricola, it was all about just building up your farm, uh, getting your family members out doing useful things around the farm. But you have now got this foraging and attacking and warlike route that you can go down using the weapons and so there are two definite different paths so that's going to add even more to people's thought process do they go down one path or the other when it with agricola yeah there was definitely lots of options but they're all geared around the same thing building up a farm yeah i'm wondering who looked at agricola and thought do you know what this needs 
This needs more players and more stuff. There's not enough going on here. My brain's not quite been exercised enough. Let's throw some more random stuff in there. Yeah, the look of it, I actually, I actually do like. It reminds me a little bit of Belfort, and he's got that cartoony look to it. And I think it actually looks better than Agricola. Whether it plays even half as well as Agricola is just—it's almost impossible to tell. That rule book is massive. It, it's an undertaking just to read through it. It's just so much going on. I can't even fathom how this game is really going to pan out other than it's going to be epic and you're going to build your farms and you're going to be digging in caves and attacking things. I think part of what's making the rulebook slightly hard to get through is that Agricola made thematic sense. I knew who I was. I'm a farmer. I'm trying to develop my farm. I'm trying to get food in. All right. It doesn't make complete sense in what you're doing, but there was enough there to tie you through entire narratives so you can understand what you're doing. This really seems to have completely jumped the shark in terms of theme. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense about what, who am I? What am I doing? What are these dwarfs that have come from where? And then, I don't know if you ever heard the secret cabal gaming podcast they previewed this and they were talking about the cover and the whole theme or it didn't make sense and they said it much more eloquently than i can that the whole theme is completely mental yeah it feels like they developed the game and then thought this game is way way too serious if we make it a serious agricola type game let's put a little bit of i don't know comedy a little bit of cartoony graphics on there just to, and how do we go about that oh dwarves are always popular let's stick a dwarf in there that's what it feels like to me it really was a theme that was pasted on after they got everything into into gear and possibly even thought of it as an agricola type game set in the medieval ages yeah how can we get farmers you need to go off to rubies and mountains Oh, I've got. No, do you know what? It didn't work. Coming up with this, like you say, it's a dense, thick rule book, over twenty pages, and without that theme tying you into it, a lot of it just doesn't make sense. I'm sure that having played lots of Agricola, when you start to play it, it'll all tie together. It's just, is this going to bring in anyone other than experienced Agricola players into it? Because I can't imagine looking at this and going, "Oh yeah, I really want to play that." It it just looks mad. But I'll tell you one thing. I think is going to possibly make it a little bit easier for beginning players i know that the huge variety of cards when you start a in your first game you're handed depending on how you give them out but you're handed like 14 cards and then you're told to build a strategy around them and then the next time you play you get 14 probably completely different cards and you're told to build a strategy around them and i know that puts lots of people off on their first couple of games until they get into the flow of it in this case with the same 48 tiles coming out again and again perhaps that removes some of the barrier of entry into this style of game i think it, it will appeal to the agricola fanatics out there definitely and i suppose they did have to simplify something in there because if if they just kept on that path they were going with, they were adding more and more stuff into a base game of agricola and adding a bit of theme in there i think it, it would have just been a bridge too far whether that pulls it back far enough to make it accessible to non-Agricola players and to non-deep Euro players, I'm not really sure. No, I mean, at least it does look beautiful. There's loads of good components. It looks amazing. You get loads of stuff in that huge box. So I guess that's going to bring people in. I have got one last question for you, though, Sean. Shoot. Who played a game of Agricola and thought, do you know what would make this better? Quests and experience points. Who played that game and said, let's put a bit of dungeon crawling in there? 
what? Ah, listen, I'm always a fan of a bit of dungeon crawling. I'm not sure it belongs. It probably was. I'm not sure it belongs in the game of Agricola, but this one's so far out there. I just have to, I have to see it to to believe it almost, because it's just I can't quite get my tiny little mind around this one yet. So it's definitely going to have to be one that I, I study when we're over in Essen. I definitely need to go and have a look at it because, like you, I think I have to see it in order to <laughs> think this is real. They've actually done this. This isn't like a, a weird April Fool's joke. Sean, do you want to sum up on Caverna for us? Yeah, Caverna it actually looks pretty nice. Uh, there are some good ideas in there. Whether they lend themselves to this type of game, uh, whether it's a bridge too far in terms of just adding more and more to a game of Agricola, I'm not sure. I've got a sneaky feeling that once you do play this game, you get used to the mechanics and you understand it a little bit. I've got a sneaky feeling that it might actually be a bit of a winner. But for now, it's a bit of a scary trap. I am having real issues getting over the fact that they've taken Agricola and just added some random stuff to it. Just is I've got a real mental block over it that you're putting these things in and the rubies as wild cards and all this strange stuff. Maybe because I like Agricola so much, so it's it's gone the other way for me. You'd think this would be for Agricola fans, but it seems like they're messing with my baby. So at the moment, I'm kind of put off by it. I'm not planning on picking it up. Whereas you think if someone told me they've made a successful to Agricola, I'd be all over that. And it looks great. I, I think I need to go and see it. It's a trap. I have to walk into and maybe it's worth going through the pain in order to get to the treasure at the heart of it. Onto a completely different level of game. And the reason I've chosen 8 Masters Revenge is because Essen's not all about the big releases. So I wanted to pick a release from a smaller company with less budget. So th this definitely falls into that category. This is a game designed by Ludovic Carudi and Bruno Sorter. Uh, their only previous game is a game called Steam Torpedo Premier Contact, which is a submarine battle game. The publisher is Sirius Pulp, and it's a, it's a French company that was born in 2011. The game plays one to four, with a time frame of about 30 minutes. It's a card game with a little bit of hand management and some direct combat. So, Eight Masters Revenge is a fighting game where players are transformed into martial arts masters. The gameplay represents an actual unarmed fight where players play cards representing striking techniques and try and find weaknesses in their opponent's defensive guard. The players have a life track, and once the markers on that track hits the last space, that player is out of the game. The last surviving player wins the fight. On a game turn, players must either draw two cards, not going above the four-card hand limit, or place a card on their player board and thus attacking their opponent. When placing a card, players will lay it next to one of their two existing cards and discard the other one. If their attack is successful, the hit points on the discarded card will be the ones that they will deal to their opponent. So how do you work out if the attack hits? Each card has two values printed on the left and right side. When the cards are placed next to each other, the two inner numbers are added together as the attack value. The outer numbers are the defense value should you be attacked. The attacker must match the opponent's defense value exactly to be successful. If they do match, the hit points, as I said, from the earlier discarded card are subtracted from the opponent's life track. Both attack numbers are the same. The attacker can take another bonus turn. However, 
the defender can also block or counterattack. They block by moving a card of the same colour as the attacker's discarded card off their mat, and this card now can't be used to form any attack and must be discarded off the next turn. This reduces the hit points dealt by one. Cards with a dragon symbol can be played by the defender and this will allow them to counter-attack. There are also effects from the cards and these give bonuses to harm opponents or to give little bonuses to the players. Each player board has a character and players may choose to play as that person. And this gives you specific techniques for each player. Now, I'm sure Ronan's delighted I made him plough through the rulebook for this bad boy. Ronan? Well, when you first told me that we were going to research Eight Masters Revenge, I admit I was a little puzzled as to why you might choose something quite so obscure. Then I had a look at it and I looked at the components and I thought, they look quite busy. It, it wasn't the most appealing to the eye. The player mats look really pretty but they kind of look distracting. Then I started reading the rule book and looking at the design of the cards. And you know what? I actually quite like the design. I think it's very clear the two numbers on the cards, one of which you're going to play to be part of your defense, one of which you're going to play to be part of your attack, are really clear. When they're placed down together, they make sense. The symbology seems to make plenty of sense. It looks like, actually, quite a nice-looking game. What do you think, Sean? Really? I'm shocked. I think it looks awful i think the cards are just as dull as ditch water they're just all they are is a hand doing different things the most exciting part it gets is when they throw some shurikens or something but other than that it's just boring it's two numbers and a hand and possibly if you're really lucky a really exciting tiny little dragon how do you even spot that dragon oh man i think you're being harsh here <laughs> and the, come on the, the player mats they are really colorful and the backgrounds are actually really nice but the actual characters looks like something out of a 1982 spectrum game yeah but you can have fun playing 1982 spectrum games <laughs> you one button joystick let's not be hating now <laughs> I, I i like the design of the cards okay I like that there's functionality over some kind of elaborate artwork. The numbers are really clear. The icons are clear. The ones that are at the top that affect when you use that card for attack are right at the top. The other ones down the bottom, you know, there's a one-sheet summary at the back of the rule book. I, I don't see anything wrong with design. I don't know what you're so angry about. I, it's just really dull, I think. I suppose not everyone's going to design amazing-looking games like a Fancy Flight or a Queen or a Days of Wonder. But I think what what is lying behind what I think is obviously a bad design you think is, is actually all right, I think is actually quite a, an interesting, functional little game. For sure. I, I really like the fact that you're, you're having to build up sequences. When you put a card down, not only are you thinking about how it attacks your opponent at that time, you're also thinking about how you're setting up your defense for your opponent's next move. You're also thinking about what the attack is on that card and therefore how it can come into use by when you set up a combination further down the line. So therefore how it's going to attack your opponent and what effect it can have on your opponent. And also there's the spatial aspect of it. If you put it to one side or the other, you know, if I put it with a, with a four on the right hand side in my right hand spot, that four is now out of play to some degree. So every move there's three or four different things to think about now you've only got four cards in your hand i'm not saying this is the deepest most strategic game ever 
It's also not a mindless game. It's not something where you just throw down some cards, roll a few dice and see what happens. Ha, 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 ha. It's, it's half an hour, but a little bit of thinking, a little bit of planning, a bit of strategizing. Yeah, some luck. Yeah, you're not, you don't have a massive hand of cards. You've got to get the cards that fall in and get the colors that you need. But I think there seems to be some thought behind the play, which is what I like. I don't know how much these characters differ from each other but if even if they just differ slightly and bring something new to the table is that going to drive your strategy so that's another interesting thing and that's not something that you they say to start off with it's optional whether you have these characters so there's lots of interest here and, and the special powers as well as you say there's this crib sheet at the back that tells you exactly what each symbol represents and there's quite a lot of different powers and they all do slightly different things and i think i think a game of this would definitely be interesting yeah i mean i'm not sure there's any massively genuine you know decisions that can affect you in the long term it seems to be more leave yourself in a good flexible position in order to to take a tax of opportunity in order to you know with what's in your hand and what's down on the board, give yourself as many options as possible, given how the other person's playing. You know, you want to leave some dragons available to you in order to do those those counter chains. One thing I will say is that they say there's a solo game in there. I read the rules to the solo game, and I disagree with them. There's not a solo game in there. No, I, I had a few worries about that with myself. I don't see how that works at all. But uh, a lot of solo games, in my opinion, don't work. And... You, don't necessarily buy games i think to to play on your own so i think we can rule that one out as a solo so it's definitely definitely not a one to four a two to four yeah for sure i think the last point really i wanted to make on it is that it seems like a nice game with a few decisions a bit of theme in there whereby you don't have to think too hard about it but if you don't play well you're not going to win but the discounted price for this game with a few cards and a few tokens, it's €30. Euro. Now, I'm getting full-on hour-and-a-half, two-hour, lots of wooden component games for €30, Euro, Essen. I know it's pretty cheap, but that's the competition it's up against. You've got the likes of Craftsman's only €25. Euro. Palmyra's less than €25. Euro. I just got Spirium. That, that's going to be about €20, €25. Euro. More expensive than games like that? I'm not sure it's going to tempt me. If it was €15, €20... Euro, I might be in at that price point. It might just be a little bit too expensive. Oh God, a little bit. That's way, way too expensive. This game doesn't merit anything more than 15 euro. If it was 20, you'd raise an eyebrow, but 30 is way, way in excess of what it should be. Yeah. Like I say, from looking at what you get from the components, lovely player mats. I, I quite like the cards, a few tokens, what can I say? It's it's hard to justify that when there are other options going to be there. When And I know they're not brand new games, but there's stands and stalls of brand new games for five or ten euro. Games that were out last year or the year before. You know, six board games for this. Uh... Right. Ronan, final thoughts? The game surprised me. I did when you told me how to research it. I was dreading it a little bit. I think that there's more game there than first impression might give. I think it's come along when there's lots of games with a sort of this martial artsy theme. And we just talked about Autus, which thematically is kind of going for the same sort of thing. So it needs to be a little bit special to stand out from the crowd. I'm not sure that it's good enough 
to really stand out. I'd love to play it. I'd love to give it a go. If we see it for demo, for sure, I'll stop and, and have a look. It's going to have to do something pretty special to convince me to pay full board game price for a half-hour card game. Yeah, pretty much exactly what you said, apart from the lovely board. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the look of it at all. For €30, Euros is I just won't pay that for this game. I can't see it ever doing anything that's close to being enough for me to want to pay €30 Euros for this. But there is a game. So if I were to see it for less than that, I think... I definitely have a sniff around it. But for now, it's a trap. Yeah, for me, I'm afraid, an expensive trap. So our last game today and the last game of our SM previews for this year is the second Uwe Rosenberg game we're going to talk about. This one is Glass Road. Now, I've just been through the list of Uwe Rosenberg's games. Um, this particular one is themed around glass making in the Bavarian forest, which apparently there's a big tradition of doing that. And today there is a tourist sort of attractions down there with regards to the glass making industry. So it's all still there. It's played over four turns and there's three rounds in each turn. It's very much a Euro game. You're attempting to develop your own little industry within the glass industry itself. You're going to be attempting to landscape the area in which you're in, putting in different landscapes, which are going to give you different resources. You're attempting to build different buildings. And the way you're doing that is by using five out of a hand of 15 cards of specialists. Now, this is for one to four players. It takes around 20 minutes per player. So you're probably looking... If, it's aimed really for, for three or four players. I'm going to take a guess. So an hour to an hour and a half per game. The game is driven around this hand of cards you have. Now, everyone has identical hands of 15 characters. In the game, each round, each player is going to select five of those 15 characters and they are going to form their hand. Now, each of these characters has two abilities on them. Simultaneously, every player is going to choose one card from their hand and lay it face down in front of them. Keep the other four in your hand for the first go and however many left as per what round it is. Then everyone flips their character. Then starting with the start player, they name their character. If any other player around the board has that character in their hand, so if, not if it's that face down card you've played, but if it's in your hand, you must announce that it's in your hand and reveal it and put it into one of two slots available for that happening to you. If the player who announced the card initially announces a card that no one else has in their hand, they get to do both abilities on that character. If anyone else has that character in their hand, then they all, each person who shows that card is just going to be able to do one of the abilities. Now, if you've got that same character face down on the table and you've used it on the same turn as the other person, you don't have to reveal it. And later on, you get to reveal it and you're going to get to use both abilities because everyone else who had it in their hand will have been flushed out by that initial player. So there's some real interesting interaction there where you're trying to time what other people are doing. You're only going to get to play three of the five characters down during a round. So you're going to be left with two characters in hand unless those are characters who other people have chosen. So you're looking to do a very fine balance here. You've only got space for two cards to be played from your hand triggered by other players. But if you don't have those two characters triggered by other players, you're going to waste some of your choices because you can only choose to use three yourself. That sounds like it's quite interesting. But what are you going to be doing with those characters? With those characters, you're going to be landscaping your board you're going to be removing forest and adding different types of landscape to give you the resources you need in order to produce this glass so wood to potash 
sand for the glass, uh, clay to make bricks for something to help you build structures. There's lots of different resources. Now, how those resources are managed is very interesting. You have two production wheels. On those production wheels, you're going to put all the base resources, so all the resources you need to turn into the two, if you like, luxury resources which you can produce, and those are glass and bricks. Now, as long as any of the resources you need to make glass or bricks is still on zero, this dial, this production wheel is not going to turn. As soon as you have at least one of everything you need to produce glass, the production wheel turns and you automatically, due to the fact there are two hands on this wheel, produce one bit of glass. And if you have two of everything, it's going to turn twice and you're going to produce two bits of glass. Exactly the same thing for brick, only brick's slightly easier to make. And then the brick and the glass is available to you to keep on going and build buildings which is another thing you're going to try and do there's lots of buildings available they're drawn from a stack and I think there's five of each of three different types available each turn the three different types are processing which is going to help you turn your resources into better resources immediate which gives you an immediate bonus there and then and then bonus buildings which are going to score you points at the end of the game so that's how you're going to play over the four turns you'll be choosing your characters in order to get resources to help you build buildings at the end of the game you're going to score buildings according to the buildings you've built as in they have an inherent value to them and also some buildings allow you to turn your resources into points at the end but that's it you're just looking to landscape that area and build the buildings it does seem like one of the quicker slightly less involved Uwe Rosenborg games which is no bad thing because I really like Makator, which is one of his overlooked, less complicated games. Sean, have you got any thoughts on Glass Road? Right, I'm not going to start with the artwork because I'm sure that uh, you're going to want to bring that up soon. There's lots of interesting mechanics and aspects to the playing process of this game. You've got the interesting card draft, you've got this produce or resource wheel, individual player boards... They're not groundbreaking, but they're all very interesting. And do they add fluff to what is essentially a basic Euro game? Or do you think they raise it above a simple Euro economy? I think that's definitely yet to be proven. This is one of the games whereby, I think similar possibly to Coal Baron, which we discussed in our first preview, everything there looks like a standard Euro. You go, yeah, everything's in place. Everything in this game is in place. You think, right... This is all there. It looks solid. Until you play, you just don't know whether it's going to click for you. Obviously, the great excitement about this one is it's Uwe Rosenberg. He's proven again and again that he designs really good games, certainly in my opinion anyway. And again, similar to Cole Baron with Kieslinger Kramer, I have faith in them as designers. I've got faith in Uwe Rosenberg as a designer. So I am hopeful that this is going to click in and everything's going to make sense. You raise the art. I'm going to have to jump and put that wagon. It's not great. It's not what you call pretty, <laughs> is it? It's not something that really shines and you go, oh, that's a nice looking game. In fact, you look at it and you go, there's a prototype. When are you going to get the final artwork done? I don't see this. There's been this big hoo-ha about the, the artwork about this game. And I don't know if it's the fact that people are expecting so much from the game and the artwork isn't quite living up to what the gameplay is is promising but yeah it's it's a little bit bland it's not striking as a game but it's functional it's all right it's okay it does the job i heard that it actually caused a problem at the plant because they ran out of brown paint <laughs> there's a fairly fairly large splash of green in there oh boy <laughs> the green's not so bad because they use two or three different shades of green but 
Whoever made that colour brown paint, they're quids in. Brown. <laughs> brown as far as the eye can see. Uh, maybe it's called Uwe Brown. <laughs> He's on a commission, is he? Just to go with the Caverna Grey that everything is in that game. Anyway, the artwork's not stunning. Again, I, yeah, I think you might be right here in that when it comes out from someone as big as Uwe Rosenberg, you're thinking everything's got to be fantastic. I think I'm just going to leave it. Let it go. Yeah, Get my teeth out of this one and just say artwork could be better now the character selection which is at the, the base of the game if anyone's familiar with the game witch's brew it sounds really similar to that now witch's brew is a game in which again you're choosing a certain number of characters from a set number of characters and you announce you are one of those characters everyone else gets a chance to either say yeah i am or so be it and and they get get either the full use or the uh, the reduced use of their character, and they can be gazumped by someone later on in the turn order. What he's done here is taken that mechanic. Apparently, he used it in another game previously, but I've never heard of that other game. And he's built a whole euro around it. Very, very interesting. I think I really enjoy Witch's Brew. I'm awful at it. I'm awful at trying to anticipate what everyone else is going to play and attempt to find the niche which I'm going to fill by myself as each round goes on and go, oh, this round, those people can go in that direction. I need to try and look in this direction. That's going to be a really important thing here in Glass Road, the ability to keep your engine churning over like in any good Euro, but in order to keep your engine pointed in a unique direction, but have enough overlap that someone else is going to choose one or two of your characters for you. Because if you go complete in your own direction, you're going to have two characters unused, which is almost half your actions each turn. If you have too much overlap, the first two that get chosen get used, and then the others you're just going to have to throw away. You can only have two of your characters in hand chosen by other people in the whole round. Very interesting balance there. I think it's going to cause a lot of agonising, because what the characters do, and what the buildings do, and how you get resources, there's not a lot of anything that's too involved there. The actual actions of the characters are fairly simple, it's it's the, the the grind is how do I make mine work without overlapping too much with everyone else? Yeah, I think definitely the character selection is at the the base of the game. But to use a juggling metaphor, you've got a lot of balls in the air on this one. You've got the cards that you've got to really plan carefully, as you say. You can't go too far to one side, and in case you do get end up with those two cards left, and you've got to be careful because you want if some cards you're going to want to use both the powers, so you, you want to make sure that you get those cards out before people take them, and you only end up with one power. Then after that, then you've got to watch that wheel. You've got to build up that wheel so that you're getting all the resources you need and you've got to time that well. And then on top of that, you've got this, these individual player boards which form sort of your, I don't know, your estate, your area where you're constructing these buildings and, and harvesting these resources. So there's a lot to take in and a lot to keep, to be mindful of definitely in this one. I don't know, I feel like the resource management and the building is fairly simplified. I think that when you've got that level of interaction from the cards, you don't need to have a real deep engine behind it. It's like I said, I'll go back to Witch's Brew. In Witch's Brew, it's a very simple game. There are three resources. You're trying to collect them and, sp and spend them on spells, on potions. That's it. That's what you're trying to do. Um, in this game takes it a little bit further, but I think if it went too far, if the Euro engine aspect was too involved it would be impossible and it would take away from the social interaction because unless you can see 
fairly easily what direction someone might be wanting to go in. In this case, you can look at their production wheel. You can see what they have lots of and what they don't have just by looking at their wheel. One thing at a glance. Really think that's clever to tie this in to this, like I say, social interaction, the ability to anticipate what everyone else wants to do. I'm glad, actually, that I don't think that the the building and what have you is that involved. The scoring of points might be different and different ways of doing it, but I think you can tell what everyone else is doing at a glance. Oh, definitely. I think, yeah, the card, the card drafting is the absolute hub of this game, and that's where everything's driven from. But I do think there's, it's a little bit more than just putting the stick in the building down, or because you do score points for having certain patterns of, of resources and certain buildings available to you. So you've got to plan that quite carefully. I think to be successful in the game, but as you say, yeah, I think definitely it's not the deepest part of the game by any stretch. Yeah, I think what's interesting with that planning is you do have to plan ahead, you do have to have a strategy, but you're going to have to be flexible. You're going to have to be able to react to what other people are doing, and if it looks like three people are going after the same thing that turn, you're going to have to have enough flex in your strategy to be able to say, well, okay. I can go after this because that will work nearly as well. And maybe I can come back to that one a little bit later. I like it. It's not too scripted. Okay. I think we're pretty much ready to give our final thoughts on this, Roman. Yeah. Of the two Uwe Rosenberg games, at first glance, I would say Caverna is way the prettier and way the more impressive. I actually have slightly higher hopes, at least on first play, for Glass Road. I love the mechanism of the interaction of choosing characters. I like that there seems to be a solid Euro skeleton beneath the flesh of that. And I'm hopeful this will be a good, fun, interactive game in which everyone's going to be having a good laugh and a joke and cursing people who have chosen the same character as you and a bit of groaning. I like it. I like the idea. It's definitely a treasure for me. Yeah, just going back to what I said earlier, I do think that those mechanisms that within this game are actually going to raise it above a, a bog standard euro game i think there's going to be enough interest in all these things going on and this card drafting selection process that really really has me interested so yeah not not the best looking game in the world but absolutely not the worst looking game either so for me i think it's pretty nailed on that this one's going to be a treasure <laughs> So that is us wrapping up on episode 14.4, the last of our previews for Essen Spiel 2013. Next time you hear from us, it's going to be post-Essen. We're going to be bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and hopefully have lots of new games to be discussing with you. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget that the Game Pit is now a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. You can also catch us on 2d6.org and on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. If you want to ask us any questions or just have a chat we're available on email at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com music by Ethan Aaron.